0: 1 Kings chapter 1, now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm." And so they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. They found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next, after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. They followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Re and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men. Or Solomon, his brother? Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Hagith, has now become king, and David our lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life, and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David, and say to him, Did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then, is Adonijah king, then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, and although you, my lord the king, you do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle and sheep in abundance. And has invited all the king's sons. The commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest, and behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant, Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he is not invited. Has this thing been brought about, my lord the king, and have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered, "'Call Bathsheba to me.' So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, "'As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, "'Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day.'" And Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. He shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Beniah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king say so. As the Lord has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. And Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came and Adonijah said, come in, for you are a worthy man and you bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites, and the Pelathites, and made him ride on the king's mule. Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. They have gone up from their rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed, and the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hair shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and he paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What kind of ruler do we need? I think it's a critical question, and it is, in fact, a question that dominates even the news today. If we were to do a simple survey of the political landscape, I think the results would prove most discouraging, as headlines report a failed leadership of so many figures on so many levels. Before you think that I have a particular individual in mind, let me remind you that this is a problem that transcends political parties, men and women in office who act like children in ignorance, incompetence, arrogance, and even corruption. And yet as we come here to the opening chapter of the books of the kings of Israel and Judah, we find that there is in fact nothing new under the sun. The story here picks up where the books of Samuel have left off of Israel's archetypal king, the gold standard by which all of his progeny are measured. Here we find King David at the end of his reign. And even with King David we find his tenure has been beset by scandal. Ever since his adulterous affair in Second Samuel chapter 11, David's reign has been a reign marked by radical indecision. You think of the story of his oldest son Amnon who raped his own sister. And though the scriptures said that David was vexed, it also points out that David did nothing to stop Amnon. Absalom, in his fury, of course, rose up and slew his brother. And then Absalom himself tried to incite his own insurrection against his father. And yet, once again, we find the king who sits on the throne a rather indecisive king. He is a man who, says, who is not able to say no to his own sons. Here is a king who does nothing to stop his own sons who try to rebel against him. Here is a king who is utterly indecisive, paralyzed, as it were, by his own sin. And now we find David nearing 70, towards the very end of his reign. He is old, he is cold. As we were reminded over and over again, the Lord had already told David that you will see your house divided. There will be uh, no peace in your house on account of the sin that you have committed. And certainly David has seen these things come to pass all the days of his life. A man who was once renowned for his strength and vigor, uh, vigor. a man known for uh, the, 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 the conquest and the wars that he had won on behalf of the nation of Israel, here we find a man who is not even able to keep himself warm at night. For a man who has had over 20 children from at least eight wives, not to mention uh, the illegitimate offspring of the several concubines he had, we find that now not even the prettiest girl in Israel could get David's blood running. Rather odd way in which the narrative opens, isn't it? It's not typically the way in which I would get warm on a cold night, much less I think any of us. And yet, David, he's cold, and what do his attendants do? They do not simply give him another blanket or a warmer sweater or throw yet another log on the fire. They throw a Miss Israel pageant. Very curious way to keep a king warm. And yet, I think what we see going on here is there is a certain play on words in which the author is depicting for us the state and nature of David's reign. You'll notice this in those opening verses that on four different occasions, it says regarding David that he did not know. Here is an ignorant king. Here is a king lacking in in wisdom. And that ignorance verges on incompetence, and even impotence. One that characterizes every last bit of his reign, again, ever since 2 Samuel chapter 11. You see this first off in verse four, it says David did not know Abishag. Here's a man who is not intimate with this woman who was brought near to him. And yet it says again in verses 11 and 18 that David also did not know that in his old age, one of his own sons, has now grasped for the crown, Adonijah. And then in verse 27, David has not made known publicly who the proper successor to the kingdom shall be. I think what we have before us in these first four verses is a picture in miniature of David behind closed doors, what his reign looks like in the midst of the whole nation. Here is an impotent king, a king who is not only ignorant but indecisive and serves as a picture of his impotence on the throne. Here, this fourfold David did not know refrain drives home that here is a king who lacks wisdom. And we have to ask ourselves, is David's life to end like this? Do we have before us simply another Saul? You need to remember this is only the second monarch in Israel's history. The first one ended in great tragedy, perhaps the greatest tragedy of the entire Old Testament. You read the books of First and 2 Samuel. You read the story of Saul, who you were rooting for at the very beginning. By the end, he becomes the great tragic figure of the Old Testament, a man who is utterly apostatized from the Lord. Now here's David, who... Uh, whose reign has been marked by incompetence, by indecision, and inaction? Do we have simply another Saul on the throne? Will there be peace in the kingdom? Is David's life to end like this? Well, if David's kingship has been marked by ignorance, we find, secondly, that Adonijah's kingship is now one marked by arrogance. Even as David is lying on his deathbed, still breathing. Adonijah moves in for the crown. Verse 5, he exalts himself. He prepares his own horse and chariot. What type of king does this? And yet as we take a step back and we assess the situation, we should ask, who is it that has the legal claim to the throne? You look at the genealogy and the chronology and the birth of all of David's sons, and we find that At this point in time, Adonijah is in fact the oldest surviving son. Legally speaking, he should be heir to the throne. Why shouldn't he be king? Is perhaps the question we should be asking ourselves. You say, okay, well, I'm familiar with the Old Testament narrative and how sometimes these things go. Perhaps Solomon is in fact the youngest of all the family members, and we have just another case of the older serving the younger. Once again, though, if you look at the genealogy and the listing of the the order of the births of these guys and of the, the 20 or so sons that David had, it seems that Solomon is number 10 or 11 in line. He's the middle child. We have no paradigm, we have no earthly explanation at this juncture for even assuming why it is that Solomon should be the rightful heir. You also take into account the nature of Solomon's birth. Who was his birth mother? It's Bathsheba. Solomon's the product of an adulterous union. Certainly, when you read 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel and David's affair with Bathsheba, the child born from that illegitimate union, of course, dies, but Solomon is the one who the Lord gives afterwards to Bathsheba to comfort her. Nevertheless, by all outward appearances, if you were to simply look on the face of the situation, superficially speaking, and you say, Who shall it be, Adonijah or Solomon? We would have to say, why wouldn't it be Adonijah? And yet, this chapter, I think, gives us several hints that ought to give us pause as to why Adonijah is not the legitimate successor to the throne. Now, for instance, uh, as Adonijah uh, um, grasps for power, as he throws his own coronation service, real gutsy move, by the way. He invites all of his siblings, except for whom? Solomon. Solomon. Why? Why is it that Adonijah invites everybody except for Solomon in his own entourage? For sure, David may not have publicly declared that Solomon was the rightful king, but it seems that Adonijah knows that there is something different about Solomon. And of course, we know, having read Chronicles and Samuel, that when Solomon was born... Scriptures tell us that the Lord gave Solomon to Bathsheba to comfort her in her sorrow. And the Lord gave another name to Solomon, Jedidiah, beloved by the Lord. David knows who the proper heir to the throne is. And yet, in the midst of all this confusion, David has not publicly made known who the rightful successor will be. And yet it seems to be that Adonijah knows what the truth is. Secondly, I want us to consider how the author describes Adonijah. In one sense, it seems that Adonijah is the second coming of his dead brother Absalom. Note the way in which he's described in verse 6. He's compared to Absalom in so many ways. He's exceedingly handsome. He is that son to whom David could not say no. Even here we find that in verse 6 that Adonijah prepares 50 horsemen right in advance is the exact same thing that his older brother had done when Absalom tried to incite an insurrection against his own father. What we have here is a spitting image of Absalom, yet another one of David's sons who is seeking to usurp the throne and claim the crown for himself. And yet there's a third thing we ought to consider about the nature of Adonijah's reign the site and the time of his coronation. Notice the location of where he decides to hold his own ceremony. I think for those of us uh, who watched on television just a few months ago the coronation of Charles III, it was not something that was done in a back alley. It was done in Westminster Abbey. For the whole world to see, you were given weeks and, in some sense, months Preparation notice for everybody to see this whole coronation service on full display. And yet, when we come to Adonijah's coronation service, it's one that he initiates for himself under cover of darkness at Enrogel, a hiding place in Absalom's war against his father. Why would a guy crown himself king under the cover of night in a back alley if it was a legitimate coronation service? And yet, notice what, ta- what feature is sitting there at the site of Enrogel, the serpent's stone. Reminds me of one of my favorite stories uh, of two German soldiers at the end of the Second World War as they're fleeing the Eastern Front from the, from the Russian uh, advance. And one soldier turns to the other and says, hey, Hans, do you think that we're the bad guys? The other soldier turns to him and says, why do you say so? He says, I was looking at our helmets the other day. There's a big skull on it. Nobody else made the uniforms for us. Why are we walking around with a big skull and crossbone as our insignia. What I might suggest to you here is that the serpent is the insignia of the demonic forces that rage against the kingdom of God. You read the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel who speak of Pharaoh as the great serpent. Or you read of the great story of David and Goliath as he, as he comes toe to toe against this towering beast of a man who is clad not simply in a coat of armor, but quite literally in the cascassim, the serpent scales. We're reminded of the story of John the Baptist as he peers into the eyes and the heart of the Pharisees. He says, you brood of vipers, offspring of the serpent. It's a story that takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, which the Lord himself had declared that the whole history of the human race would be one marked by uh, the war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And here we now have a man who is claiming to be king, crowning himself and holding his own coronation service under cover of darkness, At the base of the serpent's stone, here is the baddie. In other words, what we have before us is not merely a period piece of palace intrigue, but rather a battle regarding the advancement of the kingdom of God. Remember the Lord's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the Lord would establish David's house forever. That though David's house would be beset by much turmoil on account of David's sin, nevertheless, David's own progeny would be established that one greater than David would rule and reign forever. In other words, what we see before us, that Adonijah's exaltation is not simply the claim of the rightful heir trying to get the crown before somebody else comes to take it. Rather, we have a false Messiah, a false Christ coming to claim what is not properly His. So Adonijah, in this bloody coup, conspires with others for support. He uh, brings into his fold David's reckless and bloodthirsty general Joab and Abiathar as his priest from the cursed house of Eli. Remember the story in the beginning chapters of Samuel that even uh, the Lord himself had promised that all of uh, of Eli's house would be slaughtered, and even as Saul had slaughtered Abiathar's family... David had taken in one member from that family, Abiathar, to protect him. And yet, for all of David's kindness to Abiathar, here is a man who betrays the rightful king. See, what we need to see before us is this is not simply a rebellion against Solomon, who might be the king. This is a rebellion against David himself, who still reigns as king. It is a mutiny of the highest order. And yet, David himself has not. Yet, at this point, declared who the proper successor would be. What are God's people to do? And here we see that wisdom comes through God's prophet. A repeated theme that we see in First and Second Kings. That it is the word of God that builds up and destroys and levels the nations. And yet, it is also the word of God that sets up kings. And overthrows kings, even as we heard this morning. And here... Wisdom comes by heeding the word of the prophet. The God's chosen king is now put on the throne. Here we see in verses 11 and following really the centerpiece of the narrative. A story that's really told in triplicate form. Repeated three times for us to get the point home. Here Nathan the prophet uh, concocts a plot to arouse an indecisive king to action. And so he goes to Bathsheba. And he tells her, this is what we need to do. This is what is required in order to rouse this king to actually finally act. So Bathsheba, she goes in before her husband and and, and does two things. First, she reminds David of David's own promise to Solomon behind closed doors. That Solomon himself would be king. Solomon knows that. We still haven't seen Solomon yet on the scene. Solomon has not shown up. Solomon has not even spoken yet. And yet his mother comes and reminds David of the promise that had been granted to both her and her husband through the word of the prophet, that here is the gift from the Lord. Here is Jedediah, Solomon. And then she reminds David, if David does not act, she says, we'll be counted as offenders. You read any history story of court intrigue, what is the first thing a new king does once he is crowned? He strikes down any potential claimant to the throne. That's exactly what Bathsheba says is going to happen to her and to Solomon if David does not act. Even as she's uttering these words, of course, David comes back in and he uh, 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 he, 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 uh, tells David the exact same story, driving home this particular point. And we're left hanging in the balance. How will David respond? How will David react? And here we find what we might call the redemption of David. Here, David acts decisively. Solomon shall be king, verse 30. Not simply tomorrow, at the end of the week, David doesn't say, All right, let's spend the next three months organizing a coronation party for my son Solomon. The prophet's words have struck home. A faithful prophet who has been by David's side for decades. David is roused to action. Says, "My son will be crowned king today." Here, the ignorant king regains his kingly vigor. Here, he heeds the prophet's words and acts in wisdom. Here, the kingdom is established and secured. And in verses 28 and following, Solomon is crowned king. Notice this, that Solomon is not self-appointed like Adonijah was. Rather, he has been appointed by the king and anointed by both the prophet and the priest. Notice also this, this is not a private affair, unlike Adonijah's coronation. Rather, it is a public celebration where the entire city is invited for a last-minute party. And also notice the location of this. Here Solomon is crowned as king, not at the serpent stone, but at the river Gihon. You might be asking, why does that name sound so familiar? It's one of the four rivers that flow from Eden. Here I think we have a picture of a new Adam. Who supersedes and triumphs over this serpentine pretender to the throne. This new Adam is crowned as king, and we'll see this Adam imagery over and over again in the next 11 chapters, repletively, I think just about every chapter. Solomon is established in wisdom, and Beniah gives the great blessing, may his government increase. Hope is restored. There's a successful transition, not of David to Adonijah, but of David to Solomon, and it's met with a resounding acclaim. In fact, the noise itself is said to split the earth. There's a certain irony that goes on here, isn't there? Because now it is not David who is the ignorant king. Now it is Adonijah. As he hears the noise, everybody goes, huh, what's all the ruckus? Not knowing that his reign has come to an end, as short as it has been. The news of Solomon's enthronement causes his enemies to scatter. Almost humorous the way in which the author describes it. As soon as uh, everybody at Adonijah's feast hears it, it says they, they stand up and they just scatter. They just walk away. Oh, look at my wrist. It's time to go. A true king reigns on the throne. And here we have a king who does not act indecisively. Here is a king who does not act arrogantly. But here is a king who reigns in justice. Here's a king who reigns in mercy. Here we find Solomon, the very first thing he does, he says, all right, bring Adonijah to me. Adonijah knows he's in trouble. He has tried to take the crown from his own brother, knowing that the crown belonged to his brother. So he flees into the tabernacle. He takes hold of the horns of the altar, praying for mercy. Solomon does not act like David. Solomon does not act indecisively. He says, bring him here. And yet we find that the justice that this king gives is in fact a merciful justice. Because he offers another chance to his brother. Is that something that you would do if your brother tried to betray you in such a fashion? That's what Solomon does here. This is not the story of some type of sloppy agape. But neither is his justice retributive or vindictive. Here Solomon brings his brother before him and says, If you are worthy, there will be life for you. But if you, there's evil to be found in you, then death awaits. And he gives him one more chance. And you'll see, we will see in chapter 2, exactly how Adonijah responds to such mercy. If Adonijah attempts another coup, he will surely die. And yet what we see before us in this opening chapter is the story of three kings. The ignorant king, the arrogant king, and the appointed king. As each section of the story ends with the repeated acclamation, Long live the king! it draws our attention uh, to this question that is central to the entire narrative of the books of Kings What kind of king does Israel need? It certainly does not need an indecisive king that has been paralyzed by his own sin or ignorance, an ignorance and indecisiveness that leads the nation into confusion and ruin. Here's a nation that does not need an arrogant king that seeks fortune and glory for his own personal gain. Rather, what Israel needs is a king who has been chosen and equipped by God to act decisively, and wisdom for the peace of an ever-expanding kingdom, a kingdom of mercy and a kingdom of justice. It invites us to ask that same question, why, what kind of king is it that we need? How hopeless our situation is if our hope rests in the rulers of this day and age. And yet we're reminded time and time again from the words of the prophets, do not put your trust in chariots, And princes. As this narrative before us invites us to turn our gaze heavenward, to consider the one who becomes the ultimate recipient of this everlasting throne, David's greater son, the King of kings and the Lord of all lords, who rules in wisdom and might. You see, this book sets the stage for the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, a king who rules not in ignorance but in wisdom, one who is himself the very wisdom of God. As the gospel reminds us that we have been given a king who governs not impotently but sovereignly, as the nations are being fashioned even now into his very footstool, of a king who reigns not in arrogance as if he were to take the throne for personal gain, but as one who was appointed to such an office by the Father from Before all worlds, who has come not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. One who has come to crush the serpent's head, one who has come to put to death, death itself, one who has come to regain paradise as the last Adam to rule over a new creation, one who rules in perfect justice, and one who rules and perfect mercy, one who has died but now lives forever, so that the blessing of Beniah might prove true to the other uttermost. Long live King Jesus. May he reign forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we consider your word, we pray that this... Um, historical account would work faith in our hearts, that we would set our hope not on the political leaders of this day and age, but we would set our sights to the one who has been given to us as king in a special way over the church, who rules over us and defends us, and will vanquish all of our foes on the day of his grand conquest In return. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.